0: Well today is the first day of spring and here in the mountains we'll take any signs of spring that we can get, right? We know it's spring not because of the absence of snow here in the Rocky Mountains but because the days start to get a little bit longer, a little bit more light in the afternoons, the snow on the ski slopes is just a little bit softer and those south facing mountains just look dirty. Well, these are the signs of springtime for us, but there's something I always look forward to, and I marvel at it in the spring here, and that's those little shoots of crocus that are the first signs, they're the very first thing to pop out from underneath the snow. And I've lived in Colorado my whole life, but I still think it's such an unexpected little joy to see those crocus pop up. They're like the most reliable sign of springtime every March. And the fact that these dainty and little delicate flowers can survive our freezing cold winters and then be the first brave creation to emerge and flourish is just a delight. So all during Lent, as you probably know by now, we are talking about what it takes to really flourish in life. And we're talking about flourishing because it's become pretty apparent over the last couple of years that a lot of people aren't flourishing. In fact, psychologists and clergy and mental health professionals and others all agree that over the course of the last couple of years, a lot of people are actually just languishing which is sort of this messy middle. We're not thriving like we want to. And so we decided, what better time than Lent to really turn our attention back to God to see if we can find our way to a bit more balanced life, one that's more joyful, more fulfilling, more aligned with where God would have us be. Because Lent is, after all, a time to do just that. Lent is about Repentance, and in its simplest terms, to repent means to turn away from sin, those behaviors and attitudes and habits that are holding us back from living the life that God wants us to have. So, you know, when we read Scripture, there was never a time when someone encountered Jesus who wasn't made better by the experience. Jesus met the lowly, the outcasts, the sinners of all kinds. He met the hurting, the sick, the soldiers, the criminals on the cross. He met them all where they were, and he turned their lives into a thing of beauty. He called them out of their depression, out of their suffering, out of their weakness, their languishing, and he called them into a sense of belonging and connection and love and into a thriving life. Your lives, my life, can be turned into a thing of beauty too. Even if we are already thriving, Jesus promises us that his way will offer us infinitely more joy than we can even imagine. I have told you all of this so that your joy may be complete, Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John. Jesus was serious about your flourishing. And one of the ways we do that is in having healthy relationships. So parts one and and two of this sermon series that Robert and I are doing focused on positive emotions and self-compassion. And if you haven't seen those two sermons that Robert gave, I invite you to go back and watch those on our website, on our YouTube channel. But this week we're gonna turn to our relationship with others. Now this could certainly mean romantic partners, but it also refers to friends and family and coworkers and people that we interact with on a regular basis and everything in the created world everything and everyone that we come into contact with. So basically, human beings have this distinct and irreversible call to be in relationship with the world and everything in it. Research shows that people who have strong connections with others are happier. They're healthier, and they're better able to cope with the stresses of everyday life. Well, that sounds great, doesn't it? Sure, we all want that. But how do we get there? How do we keep those relationships strong? And why do relationships matter so much? What does our faith have to say about relationships? Well, first I want to talk about something that we all do that leads to disconnection instead of connection in our relationships, and that is that we are really good at figuring out ways to protect ourselves from being hurt. Sometimes before we're ever even in a relationship, you'll hear someone say, well, I've got my walls up on this one, right? We do this because one of our fundamental fears as human beings is being rejected of not belonging. And so we allow that insecurity to drive our decision to not show up as our most authentic self. We push others away first in order to not be hurt by their potential rejection of us. But as anyone who's ever tried that knows, we wind up getting hurt anyway. That's the nature of relationship. I believe that that comes from not accepting ourselves first and foremost. Jesus' command in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul and love, your, love others as you love yourself. So how good are we at loving ourselves, accepting ourselves, having grace for the places in our lives where we knew that we could have done better, having forgiveness and mercy for ourselves when we screw up, We got into this topic last week in Robert's sermon, but it's worth holding in your minds again today as we talk about relationships, because if you are experiencing disconnection, loneliness, discontent, it may be because you're not fully loving yourself yet. Now, I'm going to quote researcher Brene Brown here in just a moment, but when I do, I want you to listen for the part of her quote where she quotes Jesus. Brene Brown, in her research, found, and I quote, that we cultivate love when we allow our most vulnerable and powerful selves to be seen and known. Love is not something we give or get. It is something that we nurture and grow. It is a connection that can be cultivated between two people only when it exists within each one of them. We can love others only as much as we love ourselves. Did you catch that? Love is a connection that can be cultivated between two people only when it exists within each one of them. And we can love others only as much as we love ourselves. To quote Jesus and Brene Brown. She goes on to say, shame, blame, disrespect, betrayal, and the withholding of affection damage the roots from which love grows. And she says love can survive these injuries, but only if they are acknowledged healed, and rare. Rare. Are shame, blame, and disrespect rare in our world? Are they rare in your life, in your family? How about in your view of people outside your circle of influence? How about in your relationship to the environment? How about your relationships with people in social conflict today. So many issues today in our world that surround us call for love, but they are met with shame, blame, disrespect, and betrayal. And that hurt is not acknowledged, and it is not healed, and it is not rare. Human beings cannot flourish in this kind of way Of being with one another. We are simply called to be better. How we relate to one another matters. How we treat others and how we are treated matters. You can go as far back in the Bible as you want to go, all the way back to Genesis and all throughout, you will see that God is always offering people ways to thrive in their relationships. Because it's critical to our well-being. It's in Genesis, for example, that we hear the story of Joseph who was sold into slavery by his brothers. They were jealous of him. He was their younger brother. They thought their father coddled him. So they were jealous. They decided one day they were going to kill him. Yeah, but then they thought better of that. And so they just sold him off to a band of gypsies that have happened to be traveling by. And then the gypsies eventually sold Joseph into Uh, the king of Egypt's court. So he was a slave to the king of Egypt for a time, and the brothers, meanwhile, convinced their father that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal, and then they kept up this sham for years until one day they accidentally run into Joseph, Joseph who's alive and well and flourishing, and they are astounded by his mercy and his forgiveness of them. They're astounded and amazed by his affection and his love for them, despite what they had done. We also hear in the Old Testament the book of Ruth, that tells the story of a woman whose husband dies, and rather than leave her mother-in-law and go back to her own homeland, which would have been the custom at the time, she decides to stay put with her mother-in-law, Naomi. They had developed a deep bond, and so Ruth says to her, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, so shall I live. Your people will be my people, she says, and your God will be my God, too. Connection, and belonging, and forgiveness. The Bible's filled with stories that are exemplars for us to know how God wants us to be in right relationship with one another. It's filled with strife, yes, also. It's filled with bad behavior and bad judgment, of course, because we can't escape our human tendencies for sin. But over and over and over again in Scripture, the entire story of God is the story of relationship, what me, which means the story of us, is a story of relationship. In the Gospels, for example, we hear the story of Jesus and his disciples dining at someone's home, and and a woman appears, and she begins to anoint Jesus' feet with an expensive jar of oil. And her disciples begin grumbling, saying, don't let her do that. We don't even know where she comes from. And Jesus says, stop that. Let her be. She's doing a beautiful thing. Acceptance, acknowledgement, authenticity, being seen. That's what Jesus is about in his relationships. In the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 5, Jesus says, if you are bringing your offering to the table at worship and on your way you remember that someone has a grudge against you, first go and reconcile with that person. Make peace with your brother or sister, and then come back and make your offering. Do you know that's why we offer each other a sign of peace every time we come together in worship? Every Sunday in Christian churches all over the world, we come together. It's our tradition to offer each other a sign of peace. It's our acknowledgement, our way of remembering Jesus' teaching to be in right relationship with each other. Love can survive the injuries of shame, blame, disrespect, and betrayal only if they are acknowledged, healed, and rare. So if we're willing to read scripture with one eye on relationships, lessons abound. But this morning I want to whittle it down just a little bit to just a a few specific for us this morning. So, I've taught parenting classes for over 20 years now. I don't get to do it as often anymore as I used to, but one of the first things that we teach in parenting classes is for parents to have genuine encounter moments with their children. This comes from the work of a researcher named Dorothy Briggs, who found that when we get on a child's level, and we look them in the eye, and we allow them to lead, Wherever the discussion or the activity might go, children feel seen and acknowledged. And guess what happens? Their need to misbehave goes down, and their cooperation goes up. So these little gems, these these 60-second interactions with kids, looking them in the eye, getting on their level, letting them lead the activity, These are a beautiful thing that you can practice at home with your kids. If you don't have kids, guess what? You can practice it on your spouse. You can practice this on the people that you work with or the people in your neighborhood. Shoot for two or three of them a day. They're just a beautiful way to connect, okay? Get on their level, look them in the eye, and allow the other to speak. So why am I telling you that? Because this is exactly what Jesus did. This is how Jesus connected with people All throughout scripture, we hear stories that start something like this. As Jesus was walking, he encountered a certain man. Or as Jesus was walking, he encountered a woman. So first of all, Jesus was walking. He was journeying. He was on his way somewhere. And he encounters someone. And then it usually goes something like this. The man or woman asks Jesus a question. Or the man or woman says to Jesus, and Jesus listens, and Jesus ponders. Something is said to Jesus, and he listens. It's like a a call and response. Something is said, Jesus is all in. He takes off his sandals. He sits down in the grass. He accepts a glass of water pulled from the well. He kneels in the sand. He stands under a tree. Whatever is needed to make that person feel seen and acknowledged, Jesus stops and he is fully present with them. Jesus is the master of genuine encounter moments. He takes time to listen, to ponder, to converse. He answers questions. He poses questions. Jesus doesn't stand apart from the people. He is the people. He is completely present to them. He is never indifferent. He's never lacking in compassion. He is never shaming. He is always of service, always listening. Always healing. Every encounter with Jesus is shimmering with the possibility of transformation for the other person. You see, relationships are not just about how we interact with people we love. Relationships are about how we interact with people, period. Imagine if all of our encounters with everyone that we meet, everything that we come in contact with in God's created world, shimmered with the possibility of transformation. It wouldn't be because of anything that we say or do, per se, but because Jesus was so present with us in that encounter that it was holy from the very start. That's our hope. That's what we can strive for. That's our call, you know, as disciples of Jesus. How are we engaging with the Holy Spirit to journey with us as we encounter the world? Are we inviting Jesus through prayer and petition, through awareness and intention to be with us in our discomfort even around certain people, in certain relationships that we have? around certain divisive issues? Are we inviting the Holy Spirit in? Whole systems can be changed if we simply look at someone and look them in the eye and listen to their story. You cannot help but see someone's humanity when you do this. It doesn't mean you have to come to a place of agreement with someone. You don't have to convert them over to your side of thinking your theology, your politics. It simply means that you're willing to hear how this person came to this particular way of being in the world and then to access love in your response. The night before Jesus died, he prayed for his disciples. One of the things he prayed for was unity. He specifically prayed that they may be one And I think Jesus knew full well that this would be one of the most difficult things for humans to accomplish. Because to be unified, we first have to accept each other's diversity. We are called to welcome everyone, to love everyone, to listen to everyone, and to try to understand them. Jesus didn't discriminate because of someone's race or gender or politics. He cured the Roman soldier's son and the woman with the bleeding disorder. He dined with Pharisees and prostitutes. If he were here today, I have no doubt he'd be hanging out with Republicans and Democrats and drag queens and trans kids. He'd be hanging out with environmentalists and conspiracy theorists. And my strong belief is that he wants us to do the same. Not to convert, but to converse, to talk to each other, to be unified. Did you know that in a nationwide poll last year, nine out of ten people in this country said that we have to find ways to move forward together peacefully, even when we strongly disagree with each other. Now, I find it remarkable that 90% of Americans could agree on anything, but that's what they agreed on, that we should all find a way to move forward peacefully when we disagree. But I'm not done. 90% of them also said that now is the most important time, more so than ever, that we need to overcome our divisiveness. So we need to find peaceful ways, and we need to do it now. Ninety percent of us believe that. As Christians, the very disciples that Jesus prayed for that night are us. And we simply cannot ignore the status quo. If overcoming divisiveness is more important than ever, then let it begin with me. Let it begin with us? What if we, as the church, led the way in that transformational relationship building? What if we did it in our homes, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our congregations, in the nation, in the world? What if we, Snowmass Chapel, led the way in that? Your own potential for human flourishing depends on your ability to nurture and grow healthy relationships. Your happiness depends on it. And our world is craving it. So as I wrap up this morning, I invite you to hear once more the words of our scripture this morning that Bob read. I'm going to read it again right now to you, and I invite you to even close your eyes for a moment and just meditate on these words from Paul in the book of Romans and hear what God may be speaking to you through them and through this message this morning. And when I'm done, Bob will join me again for our prayers of the people. So just take this in quietly, and we'll spend a few moments reflecting on it before we join in prayer. So again, from Romans chapter 12. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave what is God's to God. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good.